I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You, yes you, listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I've got Kit with me today, coming all the way from Thailand. Kit, how are you doing? I'm doing very well and I'm really excited by who else we've got because our special guest today is none other than History Hack's finest, Andrew Locke. Andrew. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I might make it in the top 10, possibly. It feels but, uh... wrong, doesn't it? Lockie, a PhD student, Great War Group trustee, battlefield guide all around know-it-all for the First World War. Is that what you're here to talk about, Lockie? Funnily enough, it is. Yeah, we, we thought, hang on a minute, we're closing in on the anniversary of the withdrawal and, and pursuit to the Hindenburg line. And I don't think we've done a podcast on this yet, so it's worth it's worth doing, especially as it is my PhD. It's my area of focus, and it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you've been at the Well, I think I should probably kick off because I'm the science journalist. I know very little about the First World War. When I saw Hindenburg, I immediately thought of the Zeppelin. So why don't we just start, keep it really, really simple. What was the Hindenburg line? When and why was it built? And who built it? I mean, so firstly... Uh, it, the guy himself, Paul von Hindenburg, is a fellow with a lot of things named after him, but also a lot to answer for. The Germans themselves didn't call the Hindenburg Line the Hindenburg Line. That's something we called it. Um, they actually called it a number of different lines that stretch through from Flanders down into France uh, and that. It's essentially a big set of defensive lines, uh, a double trench line. Uh, heavily reinforced with whatever was appropriate for defending the terrain that they're on. So uh, behind the Flanders uh, lines, they created these Flandernstellen, um, which were very well wired uh, and used a lot of kind of pillboxes, if you like, because the ground, I don't know, if you, if you go to Flanders, you know, it's pretty soggy. Uh, around there and as soon as you start digging things fill up with water that meant deep dugouts were quite difficult to manage so they used pillboxes around Flanders stretching down through it to France though they could use more of these deep dugouts and that's what they did so deep dugouts to shelter from heavy bombardments uh, from the British and French loads of barbed wire 
uh, arranged in these kind of zigzag patterns, uh, which would funnel men into them uh, and leave them very vulnerable to enfilade machine gun uh, fire, really thick barbed wire as well. We're talking dozens of yards thick, you know, very, very solid wire entanglements, very difficult to fight through. Uh, and this was all put together behind the existing front lines uh, in late 1916, early 1917. Um, and it was built actually largely, I mean, there's quite a lot of Germans involved in its construction, but they used a lot of prisoners of war uh, as well. And effective you know, people hoiked out of, of civilian life uh, and used to uh, build it. And we know that because some of them escaped uh, and managed to escape over to the British side. So we had uh, like Russian prisoners of war um, escaping, sneaking over towards British lines, as long as we didn't shoot them because they sounded a bit funny um, in no man's land, which definitely happened on at least one occasion. Um, they could come back and tell us that them and thousands like them were, were working on these new lines behind the German front lines. Um, so, yeah, late 16, early 17, they said about 300,000 people working on creating this new defensive system um, back behind back behind where they were set. I think we need to tell Kit as well, why bother? Right. Well, late 1916 is when Germany starts getting a little bit less chill uh, about the Western Front, because kind of up to that point, the French and British performance opposite them hadn't been very scary. Now, we get to we get through 1916 and the Germans have been fighting at Verdun. Initially, that went all right for the Germans. They took a, a couple of the high profile forts uh, off the French with little cost. The French were firing up there uh, in a big way. So that had sort of expanded into a kind of attrition that the Germans didn't really want, but it wasn't catastrophic. And then the Somme offensive opened up. Um, in July. And initially, that seemed to go really well for the Germans. It looked like they'd had a great defensive victory on the first day. But then the British just sort of kept attacking and kept going. And a few days after uh, the battle opened, that's when Germany had to start sending soldiers over from the Verdun front to the Somme front uh, to contain a potential British breakthrough. Now, this rumbled through into August in an attritional way that the uh, the Germans really, really didn't like. So they sacked their commander uh, in the West, von Falkenheim Boot, and uh, they brought in Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff to take over matters. Now, that in itself doesn't mean they start working on a, a new defensive line, but with the British attacks in September, things started changing. Uh, they make the first attack with tanks on the 15th of September. Don't achieve everything that they want to, the British, um, but still great, gain a little bit of ground. Ten days after that, they attack again. Uh, fourth Army on the right flank uh, captures a couple of uh, villages with some really nicely planned uh, assaults. They go very well. Strong use of artillery and judicious use of tanks. And then the following day, the 26th of September, uh, is where Fifth Army attack and capture the village of Tietval, which had held out since the first day and really was a kind of key to capturing the high ground uh, to the south of the Ancre, which is some pretty valuable battlefield. And that's the point at which the Germans start thinking, hang on a minute, we're a little bit worried uh, about a potential British breakout we're going to need to start working on some lines to contain that. So that's what they do. That's when uh, they start cutting trench lines further back. And these are, these go back some sort of 30, 35 miles uh, behind the, the existing lines. Um, 
they would not necessarily withdraw to it immediately, um, but they wanted it there as a bit of a safety net to begin with. And I, that sounds, I guess, uh, sensible enough, um, for sure. It's, when, it's in early 1917 when they start thinking, yeah, okay, we're going to have to pull back here. Essentially, after the big advance of 1914, the Germans held this massive bulge uh, into France. And they thought, right, this, is, this, is, this needs millions of men to hold. This needs dozens and dozens and dozens of divisions uh, to hold. And if the, the British and French are looking a bit sharper with their offensive power, we maybe want to shorten our line a little bit, withdraw a little bit to some more solid positions and have some divisions free to either counterattack or attack elsewhere. So that's the, that's the kind of logic behind it. And it's, it's, it's not terrible logic when you consider it in those terms. Okay, so so the Germans sort of had this uh, effectively an entire country as a salient, and they kind of realised they just couldn't hold it, and they needed to move back. Is this is this like the movie 1917, where the Germans are luring an army into a trap, and they're all waiting with their machine guns and concrete pillboxes and all that kind of stuff? So that's how it's portrayed in the movie 1917, and that's that's kind of exactly the period that we're talking about. And they do make that withdrawal, but it's not a trap as such. It's, it's really a kind of practical defensive measure to, to free up um, soldiers. Now, that didn't stop the British commanders when the withdrawal took place to thinking it, it was exactly what it was, a trap. Um, so you got com- correspondence between Haig and Rawlinson in particular, thinking, oh, God, they're just drawing us forward, getting us out of our trench lines, getting us out of our kind of established positions, moving us away from our heavy guns, and so that they can snap back and attack us again. And, so, and Hagen Rawlinson, they're the, they're the they're the British commanders, right? Now Hague is the it was the commander in chief uh, of the uh, yeah British Expeditionary Force. That's the British Army in France and Flanders. Um, and so yeah, he's the he's the British kind of head honcho uh, for the area. He had five armies under his command at that stage, and um, the one on his right flank, which had done well, certainly opened the Battle of the Somme and then done a lot of the fighting through it, was fourth. Army, and that was commanded by Henry Rawlinson, who was, I, I guess you'd say, was Hague's right-hand man at that time. Uh, there, or that was that was starting to change a little bit because Goff uh, was becoming more prominent. He was he was uh, in charge of Fifth Army, which was also fighting on the Somme to, to Fourth Army's north. So tell us then, the brilliant stories, aren't there, of British soldiers and French soldiers waking up? and the Germans have just vanished in front of them. Is it a massive surprise? I mean, this is a hell of a lot of effort. They would have known something was up, but the actual withdrawal starts in February 17, doesn't it? Um, Is it a surprise? So the withdrawal in February was a little bit of a surprise, actually, Uh, but they didn't go that far that time. They didn't go all the way back to the Hindenburg line there. Essentially, what happened uh, in January is the offensive had restarted. Um, the objectives were the same as they had been in November uh, of 1916. So while the Somme offensive was still running on, but Fifth Army still had some tactical uh, objectives to try and take uh, around the River Ancre. So they restarted again uh, in early January, set to work on capturing um, a position called the Redan Ridge and got it, got the important bits uh, in January and made it safe in early February. Uh, now, that denied the Germans' observation of the British rear areas. And so the Germans thought, right, OK, we're not in a good position here. We'll make a stage withdrawal back to our first um, reserve line, um, the Regal one, 
uh, line, um, which the British then closed up to uh, by the end of the month. And then the Germans withdrew to the R2 line um, in the beginning of March. Okay, so still going back uh, and still pursuing. And by this time, it was absolutely 100% clear and certain that the Germans were going to be making the big withdrawal back to what they called the Siegfried Stellung. Uh, what we know as the Hindenburg line. There was no doubt at all. By this time, British long-range reconnaissance photo, uh, planes had photographed um, the Hindenburg line. We'd captured a load of German prisoners uh, who had said, we've been working on this uh, massive defensive line. We are going to be pulling back to it pretty soon. Uh, and they'd even given us the date uh, of the big march. Uh, and the big marching day was March the 16th. So commanders were absolutely certain that when patrols went out, um, on the morning of the 17th, they would find German trenches empty. And sure enough, they did. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the individual infantry soldier knew exactly what he was going to find, um, because you know, commanders can't tell soldiers exactly what they're going to find. They, they, they sort of need those guys to go out and find it, uh, as it were. So the infantry themselves were a little bit, oh, blimey, Fritz is gone. Um, but you have engineer officers who've been briefed weeks beforehand, look, we're expecting uh, the Germans to make this big withdrawal, which means you're going to have to stick some bridges over the River Somme. Uh, so you better get those bridging materials set and ready. And so, yeah, the morning of the 17th of March, um, when the British found those lines opposite them empty, you have engineer officers loading bridge materials and driving them up the River Somme ready to go. Okay, so uh, on the one hand, the individual infantry soldier might have been a little bit Blimey. But actually, commanders knew about it some weeks in advance. Now I'm going to go back to another one of my First World War frames of reference, which is Blackadder. And there's uh, <laughs> an episode there where they, they produce a sort of a foot of ground and say that's all we've managed to capture in this entire offensive. There is a huge amount of ground being given up here. We're talking about miles and miles of territory. Yeah. So, so what is the ground that the Germans are giving up? I mean, you've mentioned the River Somme. Are we talking about fruit trees being cut down, booby traps? Was it scorched earth? What's yeah, like? yeah you, you see that again. That's one of the kind of depictions that I quite like, actually, in the movie 1917. You do see the fruit trees cut down and, and that. Um, the answer is yes. They did a lot of damage going forward. That was another clue that they were going, uh, actually. In the days leading up to the big withdrawal, there's explosions, there's fires burning in the uh, German-held German villages uh, behind their line as they essentially blew up structures uh, to stop the British using them for shelter. Booby-trapped other structures as well and there's you know, some horrible examples uh, there there's um oh blimey uh, the sixth gloucesters uh, when they advance they um even eventually kind of move their hq into an old german dugout uh, that in mid-april blew up uh, killing all the um killed the commander killed the adjutant uh, those two happened to be brothers uh, killed the medical officer even killed the, the padre as well T totally uh, cuts the head off that uh, battalion there were these booby traps another really famous booby trap was Bapaum uh, Town Hall uh, where they set a timed fuse there I think they were hoping like a divisional HQ was going to move into it or, 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 or something like that um, we weren't quite that daft uh, and so it killed a couple of Frenchmen and, and maybe a handful of Australians uh, as well um, which is pretty bad but not, not as bad as it could have been um, they cratered important roads uh, as well, uh, mined uh, and blew up crossroads 
uh, railways where they where they still had them uh, as well. Uh, yeah, wanted to remove any kind of shelter or, or, or structure that they possibly ca- could and any kind of materials that would be useful uh, as well. Um, made transport very difficult too. And that's so much of that is the bane of army commander's life. The amount of whinging Rawlinson does in his diary about the state of the roads is, is just mad. But yeah, so the Germans did it deliberately here, blew roads up to uh, to slow the advance, they blew bridges uh, as well, uh, and let, let, made a real mess. And that's um, it's quite tough for, for some of the German commanders who saw themselves as above this sort of behaviour uh, to reconcile them, themselves with. And the, the army German army group commander was Crown Prince Ruprecht, and he was quite close to resigning over this. He really needed talking out of it. He didn't see the kind of wanton destruction as being particularly soldierly uh, or, or anything to be proud of. But he got talked down from resigning because people didn't want to see. He was Crown Prince of Bavaria. He didn't, they didn't want to uh, show that there was any kind of rift between Bavaria and Prussia uh, at all. So, um, so they got on with it. But uh, he wasn't particularly happy. So, yeah, a lot of destruction. Um, no major population centres. Uh, in the ground given up but a lot was a lot was smashed up and wrecked i uh, i'm laughing because of the whole scapegoating of ruprecht and the sixth army in the battle of the frontiers and it's like blame bavaria for it was basically the theme after that in 14 uh so are there many clashes do we run into them at any point as they're as we're following them up towards the Hindenburg line? Because we have to follow them up. Even if you think it's a trap, you can't just let them wander off. You have to stay in touch with them. Um, and it's a bark for the British and French, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was. It was it was a challenge, actually, because, I mean, certainly on Fourth Army's front, um, the Germans withdrew a long way. Um, you know, we, we are talking sort of 20. 25, 30 miles. Yeah. So all your trenches, all your hard work is redundant now as well, isn't it? Because you've got to follow them. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've been working in these, and the winter was horrible as well. Mucky and sloppy. And yeah, cold. Bunny quotes are out. Coldest winter in the history of Europe, blah, blah, blah. Top yeah, to exactly. bottom, generals down to privates. The bits falling off the people kit. It was awful. Yeah, everyone's got trench foot and, you know, they've been trying to kind of clear these horrible trenches out as they've been desperately bad to live in. Like a huge amount of effort. And then, whoop, no, we're climbing out of these ones now, going forward. Actually, soldiers don't mind going forward um, so much. So actually moving across green fields, which some of them hadn't seen for quite some time in a battlefield area, uh, was quite nice. Now, what actually happened for the pursuit? Fourth Army, um, having to go so far, had to be a bit cagier. They also had to cross the River Somme as well. So they couldn't just chuck a, a full divisional strength pursuit out. In fact, no one even tried uh, to do that. What would happen is that each of the, the different corps, which made up uh, the armies, would, would push forward uh, a pursuing force or an advance guard. Um, so for take, for example, First Anzac Corps. Um, who were in 5th Army, uh, they pursued with a couple of battalions each from Australian 2nd Division and Australian 5th Division. And these were under quite famous commanders, uh, actually. The 2nd Division force uh, was under a man called John Gellibrand, and 5th Division was um, was Harold Pompey Elliott. And uh, there, are some, there are some uh, clashes because they close up to the Hindenburg Line relatively quickly. Thing is, the Hindenburg Line isn't actually finished in front of them. So the Germans hold the outpost villages. So you've got fighting for places like uh, Noroy uh, and Quasil 
um, which are actually kind of the, 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 the spots in the film 1917, uh, but also Ekust and Lanyakor, there's fights for them. Uh, there's a German counterattack uh, that comes out against um, Australian 5th Division's pursuing force, and it gives them a bit of a smack, uh, actually, and, and they end up losing a village. Um, now, Harold Elliott, Pompey Elliott, uh, is famous as a bit of a firebrand, and he takes this personally. Um, so he's about to launch his entire force uh, against the German lines to recapture this village without telling anyone what he's doing. I think it's a brigade major who says, um, sir, I really think you ought to uh, tell the divisional commander that you're doing this. And, and if you don't, <laughs> if you don't, then I will. Um, and so the divisional commander ends up coming straight to uh, the advanced HQ and saying, do not do that. <laughs> absolutely not so you get, you get personalities uh involved in this further south there are some really it, it's like open warfare uh, again uh, and it's, it's possibly you know some of these commanders some of these senior guys will have had experience from south africa of the boer war about moving in kind of advanced guards and, and moving cavalry units forwards. That's the thing. Cavalry comes into action uh, during the pursuit and you have clashes between British and German uh, cavalry, um, but also things like armoured cars. There's, there's one action um, where you have uh, the cavalry advance guard captures uh, a village. All of a sudden, German infantry turn up and the cavalry think, right, OK, we'll, we'll pull back. But then the British infantry um, follow up and, uh, and attack the village. Uh, the Germans seem to be holding out and then two armoured cars rumble down the road to the north, open up with their machine guns, um, can't pursue the Germans uh, over the broken ground. So they take the machine guns off the armoured cars, link up with the infantry uh, and chase the Germans away and, and, and capture a few of them. Um, you also have the Battalion of Manchester's uh, captures an entire German gun battery, uh, which is epic. They're dead proud of it. So yeah, there's some good fights. Uh, actually, and and on the whole, the British acquit themselves pretty well when it comes to this open warfare uh, style of fighting. Now, when they close up to the Hindenburg line, they find that that's where the German artillery is, and so that's a different challenge, really. But actually, the kind of open warfare stuff with the cavalry and the armored cars and infantry advance guards—it's pretty well done. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, let's talk about when they do reach this this line, this impregnable line of multiple defences and barbed wire and machine guns and artillery that the Germans have created. What exactly happens? Do the Allies just stop and go, yeah, we're done here? Or do they try and break through it immediately? Right. So initially, their first job is to kind of cooperate with other actions going uh, on further north. 
Um, so Third Army and First Army, for example, had planned to attack around Arras. And so what Fourth and Fifth Army really, really wanted to do was get their artillery up to within range of the Hindenburg Line so that they can bombard the Hindenburg Line at the same time as that attack goes in and maybe try and draw some German interest. So that's kind of job number one. It's not necessarily attack the Hindenburg Line immediately, but get to position where it looks a bit like you're going to attack it. All right. Now, Fifth Army, which had closed up pretty quickly, they do get the role of having a go. All right. And that's where you get the Bullcourt attacks. Um, now, what the Bullcourt attacks really were, an attack on the Hindenburg line. Um, now, they didn't have a huge amount of heavy artillery uh, with which to, to bombard the Hindenburg line, but they did have a few Mark II tanks. And they thought, right, OK, the, the Hindenburg line doesn't look particularly strong in this area. It doesn't look like it's completely finished. If we uh, send a few of these Mark II tanks up to crush the barbed wire with a bit of a field artillery bombardment, we reckon one of our Australian divisions can break the line. If they do, we've got a British territorial division uh, there which can attack the village uh, as well. This could potentially work. Now, they attacked. Their plan was to attack on the 10th of April. Um, they ended up not being able to do it because the tanks didn't arrive on time, which was pretty frustrating for the Australians that waited out in no man's land at night time to, for, for this attack to take place. But they did it again the following morning. The tanks were late. Uh, again, so they, they weren't particularly chuffed with that, but they decided to go anyway. And some of the tanks did get themselves into a useful position to the point where they broke through the Hindenburg line and, and soldiers piled through it. Um, thing was, as we discussed before, the shortening of the line frees up a lot of German divisions. There were German divisions behind ready for a counterattack, and this counterattack worked and captured loads of Australian soldiers. Um, I think it's one of the worst days for um, Australians going into the cage in the entire war. Um, so although they could break in, doing something with that was tricky. Fourth Army also had plans to attack the Hindenburg uh, line um, south of Havering Court Wood. That didn't get implemented. Not for a while, uh, anyway. Um, Fourth Army mostly just sort of looked at the Hindenburg line for a bit. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that I, I need to sort of get a little bit of context around is obviously they're, they're retreating back. And but the one thing I've always been taught is that there is this continuous unbroken line of trenches from coast to the Alps. Right. So, so where is the Hindenburg line? Is it actually sort of stretching along the German front or is it just a tiny piece of the German front? Um, yeah. So it links into these other lines, really. Um, so what you have linking the Flandern lines in the north. Flanders, um, where they kind of tie in um, back to, well, they, they'll go all the way up to, you know, Ypres and beyond and, and up to the North Sea coast of Belgium, Zeebrugge. Um, you then have another 
strong line in behind the front lines, um, the, the Votan uh, lines, which we call the Drocourt Kayon line. Um, and Drocourt's right up to the top of uh, France. It's almost Flanders, uh, really. Um, and then you have the Siegfried line, which joins the Drocourt Kayon line pretty much at, at Bullcourt, virtually. It's, it's almost on the spot there. So you have this convergence of these super strong lines actually behind the, the, the regular lines, uh, as it were. And then you actually end up with more trenches behind that. So it's not it's not a simple case of, you know, you have this unbroken line of trenches, which you, you definitely had. You've got then systems behind those ones uh, as well. So if we think of, you know, 500 miles of unbroken front line, which is a really long way, and I know because I've cycled it, um, but it actually kind of it's more than that because of the depth of the positions as well. These really are epic efforts of engineering um, and, and logistics to create as part, uh, apart from anything else. One thing someone mentions uh, is the reflection from all that barbed wire, because obviously before it starts to rust and everything, it's literally just a sea of reflecting silver metal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it, the, the amount of you know, resources that go into this thing really is quite staggering. I'm personally glad that they use them on defensive stuff rather than offensive stuff as it goes. We mentioned this a little bit um, in that it buggered up our defences because we've got to move them in that. But what what's this, the effect of the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line on Allied planning for the year? Because basically the planning is happening north and south of all of this, isn't it? Yeah, so this gets a bit complicated because essentially at the st- very start of January, um, Britain still, I guess, I'm taking direction from the French, a lot of strategic direction from the French, and we're kind of conforming to what they want to do because they're still the major players uh, on the Western Front. And actually their successes at Verdun had been fairly impressive uh, late in the year. Uh, they've definitely shown some, some proper energy uh, in retaking uh, a lot of the positions that they'd lost. That said, Britain did have plans of their own. Uh, and what they were desperate to do was, was launch an attack in Flanders because that's where they saw the biggest strategic benefits. Um, now, Hague wouldn't have minded a pinning battle to kind of hold um, German troops down in France ahead of making that attack in Flanders. And so he did set uh, Edmund Allenby at Third Army HQ uh, in front of Arras, the task of planning an assault at Arras. Okay, fine, that's one part of the attack. He also um, set Rawlinson and Goff the tasks of making it look like at least the, the Somme offensive was restarting. So they get to hold um, German troops there as well, whilst also setting her that Plumer, Second Army uh, HQ up in Flanders, the task of planning a battle there as well. So he's keeping his options open. What happens in February is um, the Allies sit together, sit down together in Calais and essentially David Lloyd George, our new Prime Minister, tries to give the British Army... <laughs> Just Calais Conference and Lloyd George. Yeah, he essentially tries to give Haig to the French. He tries uh, to put Haig under French command without telling Haig. And it doesn't go down very well. No, it does not go down very well. Um, uh, But they end up compromising um, and the plans of the French general Nivelle uh, get adopted. 
And he wants, he just wants a strong British attack somewhere. So essentially, the Third Army's attack at Arras turns into that. Haig doesn't mind this too much. You know, the practical element of it uh, is not too bad. It's just the kind of loss of control and, and Lloyd George's machinations that he, he really objects to. Anyway, um, this withdrawal almost completely scuppered Nivelle's plan. It, it, it's, it's a timing thing as much as anything. Um, but Nivelle's armies, um, the French armies, plan their attacks on the ground that's in front of them. Logical enough. You know, they, they're going to have to attack it, so they plan that. And this German withdrawal suddenly hoiks them into a totally different position, um, one that's much stronger, and actually the, the Germans have a lot of reserves behind as well. Now, Nivelle's made a lot of bold claims about his attacks, chiefly that if he doesn't break the German lines in 48 hours, then he'll call off the attack. He's so confident. And um, some of the letters between British generals and commanders, there's one from Robertson that I liked in particular, which was, yeah, very, oh, this guy's so cocksure. There's no possible way we can believe him. Um, but uh, essentially, yes, the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line um, rather shafts the French attacks, uh, being hoiked into a new position, but keeping the same timetable means that the planning's inadequate. Also, there's more German reserves there than they bargained for. The British attack at Arras went in on the 9th of April and actually worked. When you think about what its job was, uh, advance, smash the Germans up and draw German reserves into that area. That's exactly what it did. Um, but then the French follow-up attacks didn't go quite as well as they'd hoped. And that's when you have um, widespread refusal to fight among the French army. So, so on, on the face of it, um, the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line has rather scuppered things. What then happens is that Haig, with Nivelle kind of sidelined, Haig is able to bring his plans to the fore. And that's when you get the attacks further north um, up at Messines and Flanders. Uh, and there the attacks bogged down in the Flandern lines as well so they, although there's no withdrawal as such up there the, the defensive lines that they built in Flanders at the same time as the Hindenburg line managed to hold the British attacks uh, up there. So overall it sounds like the, the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line was a huge success for the Germans. Paul von Hindenburg military genius. Yeah um, yes and no Okay, because what you also have is is at the end of the year, you have another attack, uh, and this is, I guess you'd say it's it's Rawlinson's initial look at the Hindenburg line and where he wanted to have a go at it was south of Havrincourt Wood. So on on his front, now they've jigged the armies around, so it's actually Third Army that's facing this point. Um, but what happened through 1917? is British industry had fired up. They'd made hundreds of tanks, but couldn't deploy them in Flanders because of the state of the ground. So we thought, right, we want to have a go with these somewhere. Let's dust off Rawlinson's plans, update it with some more um, skills, quite frankly, uh, that the British Army and, and particularly the artillery uh, had acquired uh, in the course of 1917. And let's have another go at them. And so they did. So they assembled this force of, of, of hundreds of tanks, about 350 fighting vehicles, uh, in the end, supported with artillery bomba bombardment done in a new way and uh, a lot of more experienced infantry than we'd had at the start of the year. Um, and they attacked the Hindenburg line, broke it, and this Battle of Cambrai um, was a really stunning thing. Now, 
it, it's not the be all and end all. And, it, you know, the, the, a couple of days into the battle, they're ringing church bells in England. They think, right, OK, that's it. We've broken the Germans and we're, we're, we're going to win the war now. No, the Germans had another counterattack left in them and actually cap- recaptured a lot of the ground um, and captured quite a lot of British tanks uh, as well. So on the face of it, yeah, that's a failure too. However, it showed that the Hindenburg line was breakable. And actually, the artillery techniques that they used, where they didn't have a preparatory bombardment, didn't need one, because they've got all these tanks there to crush the barbed wire. You don't need a wire-cutting bombardment. You just need something that's going to suppress the soldiers. Fired accurately, because British gunners had the hang of that, by that stage uh, as well, it means that you could launch surprise attacks in stunning strength. And if they could break the Hindenburg line, as they did, well, actually, that's almost panic stations for the Germans because our defensive line will not hold them. And therefore, it's not much use, in fact. And that's when you get the German decision to go on the offensive uh, in early 1918. So, yeah, for, for 1917, it's a, it's a bit of a scuppering thing for, for a lot of the offensive action. But as a long-term key to success, no, I'm afraid not. So Germany don't win the war. If they don't do the Hindenburg Line retreat and they'd stayed where they were in 16, would they have lost the war sooner? Maybe. Yeah, I think it might be a case of prolonging the war, but also making it more inevitable. Um, because essentially in, in deciding to sit on the defensive, you, you essentially give your opponent several cracks at attacking you and working out what works against you, which the Germans didn't really do in the West. And so when they went on the offensive, their casualties are just stratospheric, uh, really, and, and wears them out. You also, that withdrawal, I know I don't like saying that ground matters for ground's sake. I mean, you know, you, you say you talk about the Blackadder table map and uh, we've captured 17 square feet, and obviously that's risible. But even if you advance two miles, if you don't actually capture anything useful, what's the point? Okay, you, you've captured some ground. What do you do? All right, have you captured a rail junction? No. Have you captured a major population or logistics center? No. Um, have you captured, um, I don't know, coal fields or something like that that's going to enhance your war effort? No, probably not. So in that ground that the Germans gave up, there was a whole heap of nothing. So advancing and capturing a whole heap of nothing wasn't actually that useful. But what it did was put ground between the Germans and anything valuable. Now, what we say about the German spring offences in 1918 is if they'd captured Amiens, right, the city with the big rail junctions, then the British and French would have been screwed, okay? What they actually did was put about 40 extra miles between themselves and Amiens, anything useful, all right? So when they went on the offensive in 1918, they've got to capture all that again. So they put a huge amount of effort into creating a defensive system that actually put a massive buffer between themselves and anything valuable and when they actually tried to recapture it, they beat themselves into nothingness. They wiped themselves out. So I you know, put it to you that creating the Hindenburg line and ploughing all those resources, which they were always going to be short of, the Germans, because of the blockade, uh, into making this essentially defensive structure, which couldn't be guaranteed to work, 
and also pulling back away from valuable stuff was a desperately bad move. It sounds like it's quite a, a sort of tarnished legacy then. I mean, it's quite interesting because 1917, as I understand it, is also when a lot of the technology starts to come into play. You've got the tanks, as you mentioned. I think you start getting mustard gas in 1917, which is obviously horrific for casualties. So pulling back to the Hindenburg line, it just seems ultimately it, it shoots him in the foot. Yeah, and it's funny because you, you, you see sort of uh, fixed positions becoming impossible to hold. Uh, in 1917, just the amount of destructive power. And as you can say, technology plays a part in that, industry plays a part in that as well. But holding fixed positions, which is something we associate with the First World War, isn't it? You know, we, we, we think of static lines and people staying in position for a long time. That's 1915, 1916, really. It's, in fact, we're moving away from it in 19, at the end of 1916 uh, as well, because the destructive firepower um, that both armies can level against their enemies just makes holding a fixed position impossible you can't do it uh, and so yeah the, the the switch to more mobile warfare was coming even in 1917 and, and cambrai is a bit of an example uh, of that and then we get into 1918 uh, and yeah like i say the hindenburg line gets broken in in late september again uh, and this time for good as as it's attacked from just about every point and and, and broken all ends up uh, and so yeah ultimately it was not a war winner and really, you'd think the lesson would have been learned by the French in the creation of the Maginot Line uh, later on, but apparently not. And then we wrap into the Second World War and, and a long-term legacy. Um, Lockie, this has been absolutely fascinating. I mean, you've continued my education about the First World War, which I think everyone in the, uh, in the Great War Group is slowly trying to hammer into me that it's not like Blackadder at all. Um, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're doing in, and things like that? Well, eventually there'll be a, a, a thesis and a book um, coming out. There are bits on the Hindenburg line uh, that you can get. There's some quite old uh, books, uh, If Germany Attacks, uh, 1915, 1917. There's a bit of an old book uh, now by Captain G.C. Wynn, but it's quite a nice one on the, um, on the Hindenburg line, if you like. Um, Jack Sheldon has chipped in on the spring offensives in 1917. And there's a little bit uh, on that too. Ralph Whitehead uh, and his book, The Other Side of the Wire, covers a bit about the German side of the Bullcourt uh, attacks. There's quite a bit on Bullcourt um, as well. There's a few decent books on that. Uh, I think if I were going to recommend one book to kind of get the legacy of the Somme and the creation of the Hindenburg Line, I think maybe uh, Bill Philpott's Bloody Victory uh, might be one I'd recommend, in fact. But stay tuned. Eventually, I'll have something a bit more concrete on this. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.